Welcome to the Practical Employment Law Podcast, a podcast covering all aspects of American employment law. I'm your host, Mark Chumley. In today's episode, I'm going to talk about mediation in general and as it relates to employment law cases. The mediation process is very important in employment law today, with courts still playing catch-up on cases delayed by COVID shutdowns and scheduling new cases for trials, often more than 18 months after filing. I'll cover the mediation process and how it works in employment cases, so let's dive right in. To begin, let me define mediation because I often find that non-lawyers, and even lawyers who do not litigate, are unclear on what it is. Mediation is a process in which parties to a dispute usually litigation, but it could be other disputes as well, hire a neutral third party to assist them with negotiating a resolution of the dispute. To clarify one additional point, mediation is used extensively in domestic relations cases to settle issues like child custody, and there is an entire mediation process associated with collective bargaining. I'm not going to be covering either one of those. I'm just going to be focused on employment law today. I should also distinguish mediation from arbitration. In arbitration, parties to a dispute hire a neutral third party to hear and decide the dispute, acting essentially as both a judge and jury. This is different from mediation, because a mediator does not decide anything, but merely assists the parties in their negotiations. The parties to arbitration are typically bound by the arbitrator's decision, whereas the parties to mediation may choose to settle or not. If they cannot reach an agreement, even with the help of the mediator, they may simply walk away from the negotiation and continue their dispute. So mediation sounds fairly simple, but there's actually quite a lot to talk about. First, how does a case get into mediation? There are several ways. Many courts order parties to mediation, and it is mandatory in some jurisdictions. In these cases, the court will usually have a mediator or staff of mediators or judges who split up the workload. In other cases, the parties may simply choose to try mediation and hire a private mediator. Some employment agreements require mediation in certain circumstances as well. The most common scenario is that one party wants out of the litigation for some reason and suggests mediation. Most mediators are current or former attorneys who have some additional training in mediation. Very often, parties seek a mediator with a background in the type of law at issue in their case. For example, attorneys representing the parties in an employment discrimination case would likely look for a mediator with some background in employment law, or at least in litigation. It is not a requirement, but it is often a preference. Another commonly asked question is who pays for mediation? In those scenarios where parties go to court-ordered mediation, the mediator is an employee of the court or paid by the court. Similarly, the EEOC and other agencies have mediators on staff, so in many instances the parties do not bear the cost. However, in my experience, the majority of mediation is before private mediators, and they charge for their time, often quite a lot depending on factors like jurisdiction, experience, and reputation. With private mediation, the default position is that the parties split the cost, but in my experience in employment-related mediation, if a settlement is reached, the mediation fees are typically included in the settlement, meaning the employee's side usually does not pay. So what happens at a mediation? Usually the mediation is scheduled for a full or half day, and it is a requirement that the parties be present. 
In a typical employment law case, this means that the plaintiff employee must be present with his or her lawyers, and someone from the employer who has full authority to settle must be present. In my experience, someone from the employer is always present and has some level of authority, but often phone calls need to be made to finalize a settlement. Until a couple years ago, mediation would almost always be held in an attorney's office. Either one of the party's attorneys would host the mediation, or the mediator would do it. In some jurisdictions where mediation is very popular, there are whole firms of mediators with their own offices, and they typically host the mediations that their mediators handle. Now, this has all changed since COVID. Now, it is very common to have mediations via Zoom or some other video conferencing app, and as a result, the location of the mediation is much less of an issue than it used to be. Of course, remote mediations with people at multiple locations can present additional challenges, but I've handled several Zoom mediations, and my experience so far has been uniformly positive. I'm a big fan. I think it offers a lot of convenience and cost-saving for clients. It eliminates things like travel expenses and allows a lot more flexibility in scheduling. Beyond that, the mediation itself proceeds as any other mediation. I'll talk about the mediation process next, and I think you'll see how easily it translates into a Zoom session. Now, typically in mediation, the parties sign a mediation agreement before the actual mediation. The agreement explains the terms of the mediation, the fees, and any other pertinent issues. One important piece of this is that the mediation is confidential and discussions cannot be used in the litigation if the case does not settle. Also, the mediator cannot be called as a witness. Obviously, if you disclose something in mediation and the case does not settle, it still might be discoverable in the case, but the disclosure in the mediation itself is off-limits and the mediator can't be called to testify. At the beginning of any mediation, the mediator will usually explain these rules to the parties. Also, the parties may submit pre-mediation statements to the mediator to educate him or her about the case, past settlement discussions, and any other relevant issues. Many mediators also schedule separate calls with the party's attorneys to discuss the case further, and especially to cover any impediments to get reaching a settlement. Now, mediations used to always start with what was called a joint session. This is a meeting where the parties, their attorneys, and the mediator all sit down together and the mediator explains the rules to everyone. In some cases, the attorneys and even the parties may give an opening statement or present some evidence in an abbreviated format. The parties would then split up into separate conference rooms, and the mediator would go back and forth between the rooms and communicate settlement offers, questions, and information that the parties might want to share. In the last 10 years or so, the joint session at the beginning of the mediation has fallen out of favor, at least in my experience. Some mediators still do a brief meeting at the beginning to explain the rules, but I rarely see opening statements or presentations of evidence anymore, and many mediators never bring the parties together, often starting with the parties in separate rooms. Of course, this works the same way on Zoom. Parties can be segregated in meeting rooms, or they can be put together into a joint session, so the mediator can really control that aspect of the mediation on Zoom, just as they do in a real live mediation. Once the parties are in separate rooms, the mediator usually starts with the employee's side and hears them out. It's important for the employee to have a chance to tell their story before jumping right into the negotiations. Eventually, the mediator will come to the other room where the employer is waiting with an offer and then the negotiations begin in earnest. There is really no set pattern after this, and every mediation is a little different. Often the parties exchange 
uh, initial offers and small moves, and then maybe move on to bigger jumps. Throughout the negotiation, the mediator points out various issues, various risks for the parties to consider, and suggestions to move the negotiations forward. It is important to bear in mind that the mediator is neutral. He or she does not have a stake in the case, will not decide the case, and doesn't get anything different if the case settles or not. The mediator's role is only to try and help the parties reach a settlement, and the parties are free to walk away whenever they choose. Now, I've handled a lot of mediation, and in my experience, mediation often takes a full day or close to it. There are a lot of approaches and techniques mediators can try to break an impasse, and sometimes it just takes parties a while to get used to the idea of resolving their claims. On the whole, mediation is very effective. I would say well over 90% of cases I've had in mediation have settled. I want to point out one other important issue to consider in selecting a mediator. Keep in mind that some states have training requirements for certain mediators, but others do not, and it's nothing like the stringent licensing requirements you find in law or medicine. So how do you find a good mediator? Well, most mediators have received training in mediation techniques. There are several well-regarded mediator training programs out there at places like Harvard, Pepperdine, and Northwestern University. So looking at the mediator's qualifications is a start. Also, this is a word-of-mouth business, so the most common approach to finding a good mediator is asking around and getting recommendations, usually from attorneys. Trained mediators know about negotiation techniques and how to conduct a mediation, but there is something else called evaluative mediation. This means that you find a mediator who not only can help with negotiations, but also has insights into the claims that are being disputed and can evaluate them, hence the name. To give you an example, I have been trained as a mediator and could apply the mediation techniques I know to any kind of dispute. I could mediate a real estate dispute, even though I've never practiced real estate law. However, if I was hired to mediate an employment law dispute, I could operate as an evaluative mediator because I've been practicing employment law for over 25 years and can bring that experience to the negotiating process. Now, my, in my experience with mediation of employment law cases, it's almost always better to hire an evaluative mediator with plenty of employment law experience. It's extremely helpful to have a neutral third party with experience and credibility to explain the employment law process and risks to both sides of this, the dispute. Now, I know many of you are thinking this means explaining to the employee that their case is not really worth a million dollars, but... I will tell you, it is just as often the case that the employer doesn't fully grasp the risks of their situation or is very entrenched in, an, in a we-didn't-do-anything-wrong mindset. A good evaluative mediator can help explain the risks and possible outcomes to both sides and help get the case resolved. Now, obviously, I'm just scratching the surface of mediation here, and I hope to talk about it more in future episodes. I do believe it's a very valuable tool. I rarely encounter anyone who looks back fondly on their employment litigation experience, so mediation may be the off-ramp you're looking for. This has been the Practical Employment Law Podcast. Thanks for listening. Please watch for future episodes wherever you get podcasts, and if you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave us a review. If you would like to contact me about any aspect of the podcast, my email address is mchumley at kmklaw.com, and my full contact information is in the show notes. This podcast was created for general informational purposes only and does not constitute legal advice 
or a solicitation to provide legal services. Although we attempt to ensure that the podcast is complete, accurate, and up-to-date, we assume no responsibility for its completeness, accuracy, or timeliness. The information in this podcast is not intended to create, and listening to it does not constitute an attorney-client relationship. Listeners should not act upon this information without seeking professional legal counsel.